All right, everyone. Good morning. Oh, for the two of you who are having a good morning. Thank you. That was great. Hey, my name is Hunter Melton. Uh, If we haven't gotten the uh, pleasure to meet yet, I work with our groups here as well as our college students and our young professionals. Um, Man, if this is your first time to our church family, I just want to say thank you for coming. I had uh, the opportunity uh, to go to a new church in uh, Idaho. Just I was there uh, for, for a wedding and decided that I would do what ministers do, obviously on their vacation. They just go check out other churches. And I walked in, and I was very aware of how new I was. And so if you are new today, uh, please know uh, that you are welcomed here, and we're grateful for you. Uh, I also am grateful for uh, Aaron, our pastor, uh, giving me this opportunity. He's away on some much-needed vacation. I want to invite you in uh, this morning to a core memory of my life that involves professional bull riding. (laughs) Bet you didn't think I was going there with that statement, right? Uh, but it involves professional bull riding. When I was eight years old, uh, the PBA, Professional Bull Riding Association, was coming to do an event here in Nashville at um, what is now the Bridgestone Arena. And in order to advertise that, they put uh, these kind of colorless outline of a bull uh, in a bunch of participating locations where people could come and pick up copies of it, and they would take it home. And then they would, they would color uh, the bull. And so I guess, I don't know what you call those people, bull artist. I don't know, right? Uh, bull coloring artist. And so uh, my dad said, hey, the, the, the prize, I mean, there's a prize money for this. And so I was like, awesome. You know, let's, let's go ahead and do this. And so I decided to color it in what I thought would be a good picture of a bull. Somebody said from the first service that I should have had a photo, like a photo to put on the screen of what I did. I don't have that, but I should. Uh, but anyway, I, I colored it in, and we sent it in, and they were going to invite five of the best bull coloring artists to join. I don't know if there's like an intermission or like a halftime in the pool, professional bull riding association world, but during that time, you could go and attend the event, and during the halftime or whatever it is, somebody can email me later if you know what it's called, uh, they were going to highlight these five people, and they were going to determine who was the winner by very complicated means of putting yes or no in five envelopes and giving you the envelopes. And if you got yes, then you won. And so they lined all five of us up and gave us all the envelope, and I opened mine, and guess what it said? Yes. Oh, my word, as an eight-year-old, I just won something. Affirmation on top of affirmation, right? And here's the prize. I said there was a prize money. You either got $1,000 or you got a live bull. I, in preparation, I knew I was going to talk about this, obviously, in the sermon. And so I just, I'd never looked it up before. How much money is a live bull worth? I could have sold that thing for $4,000, but I went with the $1,000 because what is an eight-year-old? I don't know. If you, there's land behind my grandmother's house. Maybe go graze on that for a while. I don't know. And so, so I said, I want uh, the $1,000. And so I got it. And my dad, of course, where as an eight-year-old, where in the world would I go uh, to spend just a portion of it? He said, you can have $100. And I remember thinking to myself, $100 is more money than I could ever spend. Like, I I could live off that for the rest of my life, right? (laughs) And so I I took the $100, and and my dad took me to uh, the now no longer existent Toys R Us, right? Uh, I know, I know. Everybody's childhood dreams just came to the forefront of their mind. And, uh, and so we walked in, and I remember 
thinking to myself, my dad has given me, and I mean, come on, I've colored the bowl, so like I earned it right now, but my dad has given me more money than I could ever spend. I could go up and down these aisles. I'd never, now this was before inflation was so bad, so I don't know how the math works out. Uh, but I, I, I thought to myself, this is all that I could ever have. I have so much money. Uh, it, and, and so I eventually did spend the $100. And um, it, it's funny, later on in college, to put a bow on that story, uh, later on in college, uh, I, I got there. And my dad, I asked what my dad was going to do with the $900 that he had taken for himself. And he said, well, I'm going to create a college fund for you. I'm like, that sounds reasonable. And uh, so when I got to my freshman year of college, uh, we were kind of going up to the office where you pay. And I was like, hey, is this the money from, I'm, I'm kidding you, this is not a lie. This is the, really happened. I said, is, is this the money that you're using from that time I won that professional bull coloring association, whatever, you know, like that contest? And I said that, you know, the $900 is like gain compound interest. I don't know, you know, I don't know what I'm talking about. I'm terrible at math. But uh, he, and I was like, is that it? And he goes, oh. Oh, he goes, you know, no. He goes, I actually just took that and paid bills with it. We really needed the money at the time. And and I was like, Dad, come on. You're lying to your eight-year-old son here. Uh, Now, now come on, people. we got to have a sermon, okay? So uh, so here's where I'm going with that, okay? Here's the the Jesus juke moment. Um, I wonder if the the point... Or maybe the key to living a flourishing life is having the same mentality that I did at the middle of aisle four, Toys R Us. I have more money than I could ever need. Right? I have more than I could ever spend. I have more in Christ and his death on the cross. I have more riches and more blessing than I ever could need for myself. And it's interesting, that thought is meant to do something within us. That when we have that thought and we realize in Christ we have everything, that we then take what God has given us, our time, our talents, our treasures, the things that the Lord has given us, and we use it to be radically generous to others. And it's interesting, right? Because a lot of time, we're, we're in the middle of the sermon series on financial giving, on being good stewards of what God has given us. And a lot of times, that's like, hey, you get it, and then there's some ethereal kind of blessing in heaven that is awaiting you, you know, kind of a mansion for glory, and, and, but just give up your stuff now. And it's interesting. The Bible doesn't teach that. The Bible teaches a glad generosity and a radical cross-driven generosity. The Bible teaches that when we do that, we begin to realize that hoarding up our treasures for ourselves, maybe we could call the American dream, we wanted to contextualize that, leads to a dead end. Doesn't it? Isn't the best things in life over-promise and under-deliver? When we finally get what we want, we just thought it'd be different than that. Maybe that's God's way of saying Don't look for your contentment here. It's somewhere else. But when we give away and we live for Christ, what actually happens in us is that we begin to flourish. 
that we begin to live the life that Christ has laid out for us because we were always meant to have a default posture of generosity because when we do that, never more do we look like our nail-scarred hands of our Savior who gave everything on the cross for us. So if you hear nothing else today, like hear this. Today we will see that generosity isn't optional for a believer. And I want you to like look up here if, if you can, because this is like an object illustration. When we live with our hands in this posture, not this posture, holding everything loosely, we begin to find our true life in Christ. And we'll see that today. If you have a Bible, I'd ask for you to open them up uh, or turn them on, whatever you do, uh, to 1 Timothy chapter 6, 17 through 19. And then when you find that, I'm going to ask you to stand with us because this word is straight from the Lord and is powerful and effective as if Christ were here today. So go ahead and stand with us today. If you don't have a copy of God's word, it will be on the screen for you to follow along with. So this is a personal letter from Paul to his protege, Timothy, who one day we will meet in heaven. So these are real people teaching us real truths today. 1 Timothy six seventeen through 19. Instruct those who are rich in the present age not to be arrogant or to set their hope on the uncertainty of wealth, but on God, who richly provides us with all things to enjoy. Instruct them to do what is good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and willing to share, storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the coming age. And I love this last phrase here, so that they may take hold of what is truly life. Let's pray. Jesus, you've given us the keys to a flourishing life here on earth. And that's the thing that our hearts want. We don't want to just live from day to day, from year to year, hoping to just kind of be here until we go home. We want to flourish. And I thank you that you've not left us clueless as to how to do that. You've given us a roadmap. So today, God, we are your servants. And we're listening intently. Because we fought Nashville craziness. We fought uh, brunch we fought the allure of staying at home, or we fought the allure of not watching online. And we've come here for an encounter with you. And so I pray that you would meet us here. And I know you will. I pray that we would see you, trust you, and do something because you've met us. It's your name we pray. Amen. Okay, you may have a seat. I'm going to ask you to keep your word open with you. Uh, my points today are literally just verse 17, verse 18, verse 19. So that's how we're going to rock and roll today. So starting with verse uh, 17, uh, Aaron last week preached this uh, verse. And so if you didn't hear Aaron, please go back and watch it. It was incredible and is really a foundation of what we're talking about today. But here's a quick rehab. Uh, Aaron reminded us that as Americans, or at least people who are currently residing in America, and we are kind of benefiting from the infrastructure in our, uh, in our society, that we are some of the most materialistically wealthy people in the world. 
Uh, and, you know, I could throw out stats about how the bottom 10% of uh, wage earners in America are still wealthier than 71% of people in the world. Stats are just stats, right? But it's important to know, right, that for us who would count yourselves out of the rich category, like that's me, you're never going to see probably hunter and rich in the same sentence unless it's hunter is eating a rich cake. I don't know, right? Like that's probably not going to be me. I'm used to checking out of this, right? But it's interesting that in the Bible times, in the times that the Bible is written, you were considered wealthy if you knew where your next meal was coming from. Meaning if you were not having to work and work and work just to get to the next meal, you were biblically wealthy. And so for most of us here in this room, that's the case. You might not be where you want to be or you might not have everything that you want to have, but biblically we are rich. And, and here's what's interesting, right? recognizing that we are wealthy or that we are rich in this present age actually is a key to being a generous people. And I'm not talking about some weird off-the-wall prosperity gospel where like you're manifest wealth in your life, right? I'm not talking about that. What I am saying, though, is that when we walk around with a deficit mindset, I always need more. I have to have more. Your life looks more like a retention pond of just hoarding for yourself, then you are never going to look around and be generous. But when you realize that God has given you everything that you need to sustain your life right now, we can begin the process of letting go and of sending and of giving and of giving ourselves because we know that the security net that we need is not in a Roth IRA. It's not in a every two weeks getting a paycheck in your account. The security net that you need in your life was the cross that's covering you, that allows you to be uh, reckless, that allows you to be less strategic in the way that you give and allows you to be more open-handed with your life. So that was the heart of verse 17. That's just a quick flyby, but the main part of our time together is going to be spent in 18 and 19. So I'd love for you to look there. If verse 17 was the heart, right? If that was the the heart behind our passage, uh, verse 18 and 19 are the hands. Uh, I had a seminary professor one time who said that good theology is meant to hit your head, move down to your heart, go out to your hands to transform your habitat. You know I was at a Southern Baptist school because everything began with H, right? So head, heart, hands, and habitat. Uh, This is just for free, but if you meet somebody who has all kinds of theological knowledge in their head and it's not changed their hearts, they don't actually know God. If you meet somebody who is full of the head and the heart and and they can go on emotionally about who God is, but it's not causing their lives to be different, they've not actually learned and known God. So these are the hands because God's people do like God's people act. Generosity is not an abstract concept kind of kind of bouncing around in our brains that we can kind of pontificate upon. Generosity is getting down in the dirt and doing something. You see, here's a truth that God's blessings financially or talent wise or even time wise, God's blessings to you are actually a way that he wants to bless others through you. So God's like 
blessings in your life are actually meant to be less like a, I'll use that metaphor again, they're not like a retention pond where you hoard it up. It's a river coursing through that's meant to not stay where it is, but to move to others. And fortunately, Paul gives us kind of a roadmap for how to do that. And it's not complicated. He says in verse 18, to instruct those rich in this present age to do what is good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and willing to share. Now, come on, Paul. That sounds way too simple. Are you kidding me? I've got wealth and all I'm supposed to do is do good. Like, what does that even mean? Just do it, right? Is this Nike before Nike? So think, right? Like, what are, you, what are you saying here? I'm used to the Christian life being a game of, like, strategy or risk where I have to figure out how to do this, and it's bouncing all around. And Paul is just saying here, look, if you have the Holy Spirit in you that's working inside of you and is residing inside of you and is directing your life, then you will know what to do. You will know what is good. Right? And that's the beautiful part about growing in Christ. Uh, John Mark Comer, who was a pastor in Portland, Oregon, and he is uh, kind of a Christian leader, kind of thought leader, and he says this about the Christian life. I love the simplicity of it. He says, this is what it means to be a Christian, to be with Jesus, to become like him, and then to do what he would do if he were you. Just do what he would do if he were you. Now you're like, ah, that's really simple. I thought I had to figure out four different levels of this and memorize this and do this. And then Paul's just saying, friends, we overcomplicate the Christian life. And when we overcomplicate things, we're less likely to do them. We're not trusting of things that are simple because the world tells us that complex things are better. But Jesus is saying simple things and doing what you already know is the best. If we all of us did what we know what was right today consistently, we would change the world for Christ. Friends, don't overcomplicate the Christian life by turning it into this abstract concept, but weave it into everything that you do. Uh, here's kind of a, a, a word kind of study on the word good or goodness. Goodness, whether it's God's goodness or human goodness, always involves particular ways of behaving, particular ways of doing something, right? So because Jesus is good, he is good to his people. And when people are good, they do good toward each other based on God's goodness to them. Um, I am trying to get better at forming habits in my life. Anybody else with me just want to be better at habits? I'm one of those people, halfway through January, I've fallen off on my New Year's resolution. I'm like, this is not the way. This is the same that I've been for like the past five years. i got to do something different. So there's this new book, or relatively new, uh, called Atomic Habits by a guy named James Clear. And he uses the metaphor of, or the, the example of wanting to lose weight. And uh, that's clearly something that I am trying to do, need to do, right? So I'm like, okay, I'll dial in on this. And he says, hey, um, the least effective way to lose weight is to set a goal that you're at X number of pounds and you want to be at this number of pounds. And then you're just like, okay, let's go. That's the least effective way of doing it. He says that the best way of losing weight is to wake up each day and repetitively ask yourself over and over again, what would a healthy person do here? Right? What would a healthy person choose off of this menu? 
Or when you come down and you're just flopped down on the couch to watch three hours of Netflix, maybe a healthy person would watch less hours of Netflix, right? Like, what would a healthy person do here? Now, it's interesting. I don't think that the Christian life is a lot different than that. Do you want to be like Christ? Well, it's one thing to have that goal, but it's another thing to, in the day-to-day, walking in between, as you encounter people, to continuously ask yourself over and over again, what would Christ do here? If Jesus was in my shoes, if Jesus went into my office, if Jesus were behind my computer, if Jesus was at this restaurant, what would Jesus do? I've been working on this really uh, unique phrase, and, and it's totally novel. I'm going to put it on a wristband. WWJD. Anybody? Would you buy that, right? If you're under the age of 30, I probably just lost you, and uh, that's okay. That's all right. Again, the other half of you. So my point here is this. What is the good, Jesus-centered thing to do in your life? So here's some, maybe you need some good, like, uh, uh, case studies. Here's, here's what I'm asking now. In your relationship with your friend who has betrayed you and things didn't go the way you thought they would, what is the good, Jesus-centered thing to do? And the way that you conduct your business, where you know you can fudge things a little bit and you can cut corners to make more profit, what is the good Jesus thing to do here? Right? Um, and the way that you relate with your parents who have done wrong by you, and you couldn't wait to move to Nashville to get here to kind of restart, and man, they're over there, and I'm not going to have anything to do with them. What is the good Jesus thing to do? Uh, much to my um, detriment, when I got married, I was uh, very poor, very weak in the discipline of giving. And I had been a minister on staff at a church for three years. And uh, my wife and I, when we got married, we combined our bank accounts. And my wife just set up this auto draft to like start drafting into, right, for like our church, like as our tithe. And I had, that had never crossed my mind before. And, and she's let out in that. Uh, because of her work in the nonprofit world, she does a lot of kind of, uh, well, at times will raise money for nonprofits. And it's wonderful. I'm so grateful for my wife and how she has like led me and taught me in this. Um, she will raise money for these nonprofits. And there are times where I know my wife should not be calling me because uh, she has a job that's like, you, you really don't need to get on your phone when work hours are work hours. So when I get a call from her in like the middle of the day, like I hold my breath. I'm like, Jesus, whatever is about to happen here, let me have the grace to sustain it, right? And so she'll call me in the middle of the day. And I'm like, oh, what's going on? And she's like, hey. We're raising money for this work or this nonprofit that's doing great work in Africa. And uh, she goes, can we give uh, to this organization? And much to, uh, to, to my discredit, I too often am strategic or I'm too often reserved and I'm like, well, if we give that amount of money or if we give any money, then maybe we can't, like, you know, we're saving to go on this vacation and maybe we can't do whatever, this or that or that. And I love how my wife doesn't go through that thought process. Her thought process is, I see the need. We have more than we need. Therefore, we're called to fix it. Or therefore, we're called to be a part of the solution. 
She sees the situation and she says, what is good? What would Jesus do if he were me? I just think that's a really simplistic way of applying the gospel in situations where we're normally keeping him out of. Friends, uh, generosity, goodness is not optional for for a believer. Not because God's looking at your report card, wondering, did you stack up financially? That's not it at all. It's not optional because when you give, you actually are finding True life. You're actually looking, like I mentioned earlier, a lot like Jesus to a watching world. Right? We are not moved necessarily anymore by a lot of words strung together. What I mean by that is that we're kind of built for suspicion on words. But people don't and aren't suspicious when you just wholesale give away what you have and you live a life that looks like Christ, the world can be drawn to that. So that's 18. Let's move on to 19 now. In verse 19, we see Paul say that those who are generous in this world are storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation For the coming age. In the ESV, it's a little clearer what Paul's connecting from verse 18 to 19. He uses the word thus. He connects 18 with 19 by saying, thus they are storing up treasures for themselves. So when you are good and you are generous and you are full of good works, you're storing up treasures for yourself as a good foundation for the coming age. If you know uh, your New Testament, you would know that Paul is hitting at something that Jesus hit upon on the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 6. So he's saying, you're you're storing up treasures for yourself, not in this age, but the age to come. Do you want to know how you how if you or if you really truly do believe that heaven exists or not? How do you spend your money? Maybe here's a a more concrete version of that. Are you spending your money? Are you spending your time? Are you spending your talents pursuing uh, things, not people? Is your number one aim in life to own real estate in Nashville? Right? Is your number one aim in life to flourish professionally? Is your number one aim in life to look a certain way? Right? Those are things. We are called to invest in eternity, in people. And that's what he means by storing up treasures for things that will last 7 trillion years, not 70 years. Matthew 6, 21 says this, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be. And look, you might be killing it at the financial game, right? Because that's the easy kind of thing. That's the most tangible thing to, to look at. You might be killing it. You're, hey, look, I'm giving like 20% of my income away, all that kind of stuff. By the way, if you give out of the wrong heart, it's still legalism. You're not getting credit, right? We give out of the abundance. But maybe in a city that's built on full blast, uh, when I was out in Idaho, I referenced that earlier, I realized how insanely busy things are here in Nashville by looking at how insanely not busy things are in Boise. I'm like, people just breathe air and walk around and just like love life. I'm like, what? I'm back in Nashville. It's like skirting all over the roads and trying to not hit a pothole and all that stuff. Um, but in a city that values efficiency 
and values getting things done. You might be killing it financially, but if someone were to come to you tomorrow with an unplanned, interrupted time of need, would you in your schedule have the margin to stop and talk with them? See, I find where we have uh, maybe a, a lot of wealth in this city, I find that more people struggle with giving of their time than anything. But Jesus and his love moves at the pace of walking, of slow, calm, interruptible schedule. Uh, Jonathan Edwards, who was an 18th century American theologian, potentially one of the greatest uh, uh, in American history, says that the ultimate good, anytime somebody makes a big sweeping definition like that, you need to pay attention because they're either lying, they're a lunatic, or they're, you know what I mean, or they're right. And he says this, the ultimate good in life is treating things according to their eternal value. So what are you giving of yourself as if it's eternal when really it's never promised to go with you to the grave? What are you giving of yourself that will fade in the next decade two decades, three decades, when the Lord is saying, you got seven trillion times seven trillion years in front of you. Because that will reveal to us where our true hope is. It was always meant to be in the next life to come. And generosity is a way of saying, hey, I don't keep anything here. I'm just renting all this stuff. Nothing belongs to me because my kingdom is waiting for me in a kingdom far beyond this and one in which I will be in the presence of my Savior forever. You know, giving away money um, that we were saving for ourselves. And don't hear me, hear me on this. To save out of the right heart is not bad in and of itself. It's the love of money that's the root of all evil. It's not money itself. But giving away money, giving away our time, giving away treasures, it might, it might be that you are actually investing in something with eternal dividends. Um, so my question for you today What is your next step in generosity? Right? And, and don't, don't cheapen it to just financial resources. Oh, this is what Paul is, is talking about. But what is your next step? How has God uniquely wired you to be able to give of yourself either to the local church, through the local church, in another kingdom initiative that is making a difference across the city, Maybe it's you utilizing time. Maybe it's you saying, I have this really crazy, uh, wild gift. Maybe it's coloring bowls in on the weekend. I don't know, right? But what is that thing that God has uniquely given you that he's saying this was never yours to begin with? It's yours to steward, and it's yours to bless other people with. Like, what is that? Because when we give of our time, our talents, and our treasures, we are storing up for ourselves riches in a kingdom that is guaranteed to exist for eternity. We've all lived the past two years in this calamity of craziness. And we have seen the weakness 
of what putting our hope in our future plans and our finances and our social calendars and social... We've seen the weakness, the flimsiness of that. And so my question for you is where are you putting now your things, your life, your relationships, where are those going? Because it's through our giving away of ourselves that we take hold of what is truly life. And who here today doesn't want the key to living a balanced, centered, victorious, amazing life. And God's saying, it's here. It's here. And this is the pathway through it. This is the pathway that I've given you to walk through. You see, giving isn't optional for a believer because we know that life is more than hoarding and keeping for ourselves. We clearly don't put our hope in a worldly financial security, but what we do is we look up before we look horizontal. What I mean is this, 2 Corinthians 4, 17-18, Paul also writes to a church in Corinth, for our momentary light affliction is producing for us an absolutely incomparable eternal weight of glory. And then verse 18, so we do not focus on what is seen, but what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. Hey, look, do you want to be content in life? Live as if you will live 7 trillion times 7 trillion years in the light of your Savior. Franticness, unease, anxiousness, live as if this is all we've got. And I promise that in the light of God's glory and grace, even our best laid plans will grow strangely dim. So we're going to pray now. And because we're not just passive spectators but we're active participants in uh, an experience like this. I would love for you just to to bow your heads and, and chat with the Lord. Either thank him for what he has given you or ask him, Lord, what is my next step of generosity? So let's bow our heads now and close our eyes.